Welcome back, friends, to Beyond the Sectors, your bi-monthly podcast all about the beyond world of author duo Kit Roca. My name is Chelsea. And I'm Anna. And we are here to talk about the about the last book in the series, friends. It will not be our last episode. Never fear, you are not done with us quite yet. But it is the last book in the Beyond series officially. We are talking today about Beyond Surrender, which is Nessa and Ryder's book. Um, before we get too much into it, do we want to, do you want to give us an attempt at a plot synopsis? This is another yeah, one where it's hard know, because I'm, so much happens. <laughs> There's so much that happens in this book. But Wrap I, up the last book in a nine book series, Anna, <laughs> just real quick. Should have practiced. But um, at this book, it's the story of Nessa, who is the liquor queen of uh, the O'Kanes. Uh, she is the power behind the throne and that she's the one who keeps all that tasty, tasty bourbon coming. And the writer is the child of the revolution. He is uh, the sort of adopted son of Jim Jerrigan of the famous murder book, uh, who has been planning this rebellion for years and years and training Ryder to be the perfect soldier to bring it to pass. And now he's here at the war and he can't think what happens beyond it. But what he does want is Nessa. And that presents uh, some issues for them, so to speak, just in terms of the fact that uh, Ryder is one of the other kind of now sector leaders since Jim Jarrigan was assassinated. There is also some um, really deep-rooted ties between Nessa and uh, Dallas specifically, but Dallas and Lex is a pair. And so this is very much so the relationship that feels maybe the most... Uh, kind of quote traditionally familial and that Nessa very much so feels like Dallas's daughter and he has taken that role for her. Right they have like this mix between daughterhood and and brotherhood uh, because uh, he he is a father figure but he's also a big brother figure. Um, and so it's really it's just it's interesting the the times that we get to see specifically Dallas and Ryder interact. There's never quite the full like cleaning the shotgun on the front porch scene but there are some times when the vibe gets a little bit close to that there's right. there's it's, some it's clear you better that not if it weren't for lex yeah. <laughs> there would oh, be yeah. some shotgun cleaning because mm-hmm. <laughs> declan declan would want to deck him uh but uh he he's holding off because his dear beloved lex has told him that that would be bad for nessa <laughs> The, and so when we open this book, like we were talking about in our last episode, we pick up right where Beyond Ecstasy ended with the lights in Eden going out. We start the book with Ryder. Ryder was not aware of this plan. So when the lights in Eden go out, he uh, is non too happy with Dallas and Lex. So he kind of takes off for Sector 4 and at that point in time comes to an arrangement where he's going to keep himself more in the loop and become a more active participant in planning the rebellion by kind of moving into the compound, uh, which just creates all kinds of problems for Nessa because she wants on that real quick and real hard. And that gets very, um, not uncomfortable for her, but something that she very quickly has to learn how to navigate because Ryder is now just kind of around a lot and in her space much more frequently. Well, and, I mean, and Nessa has been there from the beginning of the gang. So she has watched everybody pair up or couple up or triple up, right? So she's seen these relationships unfold from the chase and the and the negotiations. So, and she is a gossip hound. So she has been trying to get all the lovely details. But as we find out, not getting a whole lot of action. 
mostly because people want her not for her, but what she can do for them, which has made her very cynical and put up walls against anybody who's not worthy of her, right? And so here's Ryder, who is a dangerous wild card. Nobody really knows what he's up to. Jim Jarrigan raised him, so he can't be on the up and up, you know? And so she sees a very, very pretty face and worst of all, a very smart man. And she is always scared of smart men because they always have plans and there's plans about her rather than for her. Mm -hmm. You also, there's a definite appeal for Nessa in that writer is not somebody that she's basically grown up with her entire life as the oldest member of the O'Kane gang who's not Dallas. (laughs) She has been there through everybody else's kind of adoption and welcome. And so they've all viewed her as this uh, sister figure and this kind of, you know, very much so off limits with the exception of those who maybe live in the sector and only see her for her abilities and the things that she can give her. So she's had these two really shitty, but kind of, polar opposite extremes of types of men or types of people that she's had to interact with. And here is writer who is none of those things. So very appealing, but also very smart and very unpredictable. And as the story goes on and she realizes more and more that this war is all he knows and all he has ever really been kind of preparing for that becomes something for her that becomes a something about writer for her that she continues to kind of want to pick at and pick apart and get to know more about. Right, because they're both very perceptive people. For her, it's out of self-defense, right? She's always looking to see what people's angles are because so many people have an agenda about her and she doesn't want to repeat these, these damaging relationship mistakes that she's made in the past. So she's always looking like what's behind something, and so she sees stuff in Ryder that Ryder wouldn't want her to see, right? So she she can tell when he clams up about a topic. She can tell what kind of things have keep him alienated to certain things. And Ryder is just damn perceptive because his life has always been about being undercover, right? So he's always hearing like trying to mold himself to what people want him to be. So he sees her in an instant, right? And we talk, I mean... One of the things about her is she's very ADHD and very um, exuberant. And so he talks about how she has all her emotions on her face just flickering past. And he can read those, which can be very uncomfortable for Nessa. Because people sort of look past it. She's one of the guys in the gang. Um, everybody's kid sister. And he zeroes into the fact that she's lonely and that alone and all that. And that is... Brie has talked several times on Twitter or has mentioned several times throughout time how, how that while every character has bits of both Brie and Donna in them, as is always the case, that that ADHD aspect, specifically that like crafting and, and hobby and kind of constantly needing to be learning and doing a new thing is very much so her. And as a fellow ADHD or brain, that is something that resonates a lot with me. And so I think that it's really beautiful to, in this specific context, see that kind of uh, monkey mind, as we call it in my house, used in such a positive way and that she is able to conceive so many possibilities and so many different aspects and avenues that their life can take 
once all of this has been, once their lives have become settled post-war. And, you know, part of her maturation over this book is realizing that there are tragic outcomes to that too, that, that some of the outcomes will be tragic for certain people and that optimism will not pan out for everybody. I think that's kind of Nessa's growth point. But it's contrasted really beautifully in that her creative ability and her ability for her brain to kind of multitask is in such stark contrast to writer who has never known any you know he's he's the one who inherited the crazy murder book and his only you know knowledge about this life is how to win this war and he's angry about it and there there's a really beautiful scene where he kind of puts words to how he feels robbed by that and he's angry about that because he can't he he doesn't have the capacity to imagine an after or what comes next or what could be right he has he has to admit that his dream post-war is this cabin but there's this argument that he and nessa have where he she thinks he can't picture her into his world but he realizing how empty that dream is because it's never been actually his dream it was his dad's dream. He just needed a dream, so he just took it. Um, and you just sort of, he has lived this hyper-focused life on being the best soldier, working up to this war. And there's so much he doesn't know. So much he doesn't know. Um, and on the other hand, Nessa has sort of, she she's all about learning new things and finding new things and that thrill and the one constant she has in her life it's the liquor um i think partly because so much rests on it um she feels that that's where she feels that her responsibility so heavily of like everything rests on her not scorching this mash like she did that one time um all that kind of stuff so that's that's her stabilizing point but everything else she's allowed to like she has the money and the freedom and the safety to be like, I'm going to learn how to knit. I'm going to make jewelry. I'm going to make nail polish. And she can do all those things. And so she has a thirst for knowledge and, and discovery and finding, which becomes contagious for writer. Like he can like, I can experience having curiosity for other things than, re- than how to take down the walls of Eden, you know? And I think it's, you know, you just pointed it out and it brought it, I think it's a really good point to bring to mind that part of that too is that she has been so protected and that she's had this kind of, you know, whereas Ryder has thought so much about the cost of war and the upcoming war and how that's going to pan out. Nessa hasn't really spent a lot of time thinking about those realities because in a lot of ways she hasn't really had to She because she is the little sister of everyone in the gang and because she is so important in what she can do in terms of their liquor production, she's been kept very protected and very kind of insulated and almost isolated like we were talking about earlier and not just, you know, in terms of like romance and sexually, but just in terms of kind of experiencing the world, you know, she, you get the vibe that she hasn't, you know, once her original family made the trek from Texas to where they are now, she doesn't necessarily get out of sector four a lot. She doesn't necessarily even leave the compound a lot because she's always so busy with the liquor production, but it's also put her in this very kind of insular place where she's unaware of a lot of the more gritty and harsh realities of the way this life is now turning out to be right and i mean she has a sense of she has this family right she's lost her family early on as a young girl she had her grandfather she had dallas and but then she has this the the O'Kanes are her people 
and she holds them really close. So she really struggles with every casualty, right? Because it's her whole world. It's who she's built her life on. They're not nameless versus for Ryder. He has to grapple with the fact that a lot of the people who die for him in eight and who die for him in five, he doesn't know. And that, and that he re, he sees in Nessa's struggle to deal with the casualties of war, the reality of what his people are feeling because he didn't feel it for them because he didn't know them. Um, like the one person he sort of whose outcome he wants to learn is serious because he wants to find out what happened to her on behalf of Jim, who we find out had a hot little secret. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> relationship with, I'm like, okay. Um, but yeah, so th- this book to me was very interesting of basically two people who have lived very different kinds of isolation, finding each other and struggling to figure out what this is. Because, you know, the O'Kanes have always lived in the moment. And they have to figure out how to live in war where they might not be the next moment. And then you have Ryder who's always lived toward this purpose, trying to figure out what he can do after. Like, what is he if he's not a soldier of revolution? What if you get the thing that you've been working for? I think a lot of the relationships and a big theme we've seen in a lot of the relationships is that it looks different in every iteration, but there's very much so this idea of kind of the yin and yang of relationships and that it might not be one person, but there are people or a collective group of people who can fill in the gaps that you lack and you can then do that for them in a very similar way. And I feel like we see that very strongly with Ryder and Nessa and that they are able to kind of pull out of each other the things that the other person finds very difficult and kind of lacks or has the trouble doing, you know, one of their biggest like sex scenes is literally him teaching her via oral sex to concentrate <laughs> and to slow down her brain and to to kind of bring that slower, more deep thinking and planning side out, which is something that Nessa struggles with as somebody who's always got many things going. And I think at the end of the scene, she gets it down to like three thoughts running through her head (laughs) instead of like 15 or something. But it's just this really, you know, it's this nice moment of him pulling out that that part of her that she has trouble accessing on her own, just as she's able to do for him in so many different ways throughout the book. Well, and, and in this, in the book is, it's almost, you know how there's always that trope of the romance reader who falls in love. I feel like Nessa is that kind of character because she has vicariously lived through everybody's relationships and now experiencing them is like, oh my God, this is completely different. I want to run away, run away. <laughs> and also just even the things of like, I love the moment where she is struggling to tell them what he means but it's basically like if she doesn't talk about it it means something if she talks about it it means something and being on the flip side of like not being able to articulate what somebody means and um so there's all this um thinking about the relationships that they do both of them because he's a master planner for hers because it's like she can't think about anything else um and I just love that. And I found Ryder incredibly funny. Like, you know, I love how freaked out he is by by, by Finn laughing and smiling. And so they're like, who are you? And are we going to die? Uh, 
he's very dry and it's there's just this kind of because he doesn't and and they talk about this at the end of the book how he can kind of be a friend to Dallas without being under him in any way but there's because of that you get this this energy and this vibe from him that like he really doesn't give a shit because he doesn't have to and so that just creates this like dynamic between him and Dallas and the O'Kanes like as a family that I just is can be very funny at moments in this book that need levity because a lot of non light things happen by the time we get to the end of the book Um, so speaking of do we want to go ahead and transition to talking about the war and the end of the war and all of those things so we have some big turning points that happen we have the O'Kanes run into, was it Sector 3, to discover a uh, big massacre has occurred. And basically, we discover that Ashwin's running around taking down Sector. Uh, yeah. he Was it like, 42 people? He just... Like, like, that whole scene is ridiculous because they literally run in and, like, the street is just, like, a what Like, I, it felt like a scene out of, like, John Wick because the street is just, like, awash with bodies. And he's not there, but they know... That Ashwin has done it and like the Baba Yaga has come and like wiped out this entire like secret unit, like like select service unit. And they're so, they're like, well, thank you. But also like. But also, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Because they don't know on whose side he's on. They don't know if he has a side. He's just a little murder machine running around uh, taking out people that are going to threaten his the whatever whatever agenda he has during that day, which you know, FYI, gonna come into issues with Greenies and Gideon's writers. Um, yes. <laughs> so there's which this book does a lot of setup work for, but we will talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about in that a little bit. Yeah, but so so there's that they walk in and there's the so they they have to think about like how do we use this right? Do we bury the bodies? Do we? And Dallas makes this call of no, we're just gonna leave it. We're going to leave it so that way the next group that shows up here is scared of us. So they're like, it wasn't us, but okay, fine, we'll take credit. And so you have that build up to war, right? Of like these hard choices, these ugly choices, these these ugly things that they have to carry home. Um, I love that there's a scene where Nessa talks about the different O'Kane parties. Um and how there's these very exuberant dance parties where people are just going off into their corners. Then you have these other parties that are darker where people are seeking mutual comfort. Uh, and where often where she feels like people are there just to keep her company because they would rather be back in their rooms having sex and mutual comfort. Um, and then there's like the parties where like they're not parties. People are just sitting and drinking. So you really get a sense of where the war is taking our people um, to very dark places. Um, because you can't go out and see bodies everywhere without thinking it could be us next time. And I think there's along those same lines and in that same vein, we also see that same thing reflected in the fight nights are getting more and more crazy. They're thinking of adding another night to fight night. There's a specific line that talks about how that will work for a couple weeks, but eventually they're going to get to the point where they're going to have to have a fight night every night. And you really feel that kind of peace that we've known, you know, for as much as we can have peace in the sectors before this, four has been a place of kind of respite and peace and prosperity. And you really get the sense that in the community at large, that's starting to slip. And every person in four is 
more and more on edge and is waiting for the shoot to drop and is ready, well, as ready as you can be for war. And things are just very fundamentally, energetically different in four. Yeah, you now right because you have the the fight night stuff. We have the and the empty market. We have just that tension and aggression that that's simmering and waiting. And I love the scene where somebody runs out and is basically like Dallas. Hey, hang on here. Um, one of my my husband wants to enlist. <laughs> but he has that bad leg and so Dallas has to do this whole thing of like we'll let him serve in another way um and writers watching this of like why he this is sort of like for him he realizes this is why Dallas is not a dictator even though he's a sector leader because he actually listens to people and he cares about the people and the people feel heard um and that's a, such a huge contrast with what's happening in Eden right where they're conscripting everybody to be cannon fodder. And you get a sense that, yes, he's building a militia. Yes, he's teaching people to fight. But it's their fight. Um, not this, you're you're just going to die for us. Um, so I thought it was a really nice contrast that is occurring there. Um, yeah. I, I always, you know, like you see the strain that this also is having on Dallas. Um, I mean, we touched on it when we were talking about closed doors, um, but this is where this, this is real. You know, he, he's getting his, those white hairs, those lines, and he, both Ryder and him feel very heavy, uh, being in those rooms, watching all the surveillance data and getting the reports, the ugly stuff, because you can tell both of them much rather be jumping into pits and beating people up than sending people they love to die. And of course, all of that really comes, um, no pun intended, but crashing home for them. I feel like when um, kind of towards the middle-ish of the book, we really get, I think, the biggest event in the story short of the actual assault on Eden, which is um, the the drone bombs that land on the Broken Circle. Um, and that, you know, as read for the characters, obviously, but also as readers, this place that we have spent so much time and become so comfortable in and seen so many permutations of happiness and fulfillment kind of take over has been attacked and has been destroyed. And really, as much as we've seen this war encroaching on Dallas and on the sector, this is the first time it has really come not just to their doorstep, but into their house and into the innermost, safest part of their house. This is, of course, also the scene where we lose Flash, which is one of the first um, and I think hardest major character losses in terms of Flash. We knew Flash in book one. We've seen in every book mentions of Flash and his family. Flash has a child. Yeah, so we have his Amira and Hannah. They've been part of the O'Kane community as an established couple from the beginning. Uh, and I guess in romance land uh, terms, they were, they were safe ish because they were in a relationship, but they were also not main characters. So it's such a shocking moment when you're sitting there with Nessa and she realizes Flash is going to die because they survived the initial bombing he's actually severely injured and doesn't know it. Um, and it's just such a thing of having her sit 
and she's she's thinking like she's having multiverse visions of you know if she had not teased him about the bourbon he came to ask for maybe he would have uh not been there and gotten hurt you know so she carries that sort of like every little decision fork how do because she doesn't want Amira to feel this and Hannah to have this loss and for Leo Kane's to but he was there and he he got hurt yeah she, she there's a great deal of survivor's guilt that goes on pretty much immediately she she starts to blame herself that she couldn't dig them out of this cave-in because they are the last couple of people ushering everybody out of the bar when the last kind of bomb actually falls on the broken circle. And so there's a cave-in. And so she blames herself for not being able to dig them out fast enough. She blames herself for basically not making him sit down. And then for, you know, the general, more general universal what if I hadn't been here today so he hadn't had to come see me here to do this thing? And so all those things that are out of your control. And it's a really pivotal moment. I mean, not just for us as readers, because it it showed us that this, you know, this is war. And it's not like it, that's not something we knew, but just it reinforced that no one is safe in a war, period. Um, and then in addition is a, is a turning point for Nessa in terms of, her waking up to, I feel like, the real, um, like, face-to-face impact. Because I think, and with good reason, that, that death, especially death like that, is something you can maybe conceptualize or you know in, like, that nebulous way is possible. But until it's there and impacting you and all the people you love, it's not something you can really fully, like, grasp. And so this is that moment for... Nessa and for the O'Kanes as a whole that this is now some like this is something that's going to cost all of them it's that really beautiful kind of line or scene of the now the happy ending even if they win can only be so happy because there will there will never be flashback that's always something they will be missing yeah and I mean it's interesting because it's sort of like right before we have had the scenes where Tank dies protecting Dallas we have reports that Stuart doesn't make it out of a, a militia activity. So these are people, Tank, who's been around for the last two or three books. Uh, we have Stuart, who's been there from the beginning, selling all that kinky leather shit that they love. And he's been, I mean, he's been such a pivotal member of like the merchant's crew. Um, and for him to sort of die off panel, you sort of and feel, everybody just feels that loss. And then you have it come home and Nessa, who doesn't go on the field, who has never been trained to fight, who has never feels like she's never had, all she has to do is be liquor queen. And she's finally feeling like, man, I wish I had some skills, right? I wish I had some, uh, something else I could do if I could pick up a gun and shoot something because she just had to sit and hold Flash's hand as he dies. And I mean, it's, he, she did that. And she's able to hear his last words. And this is where I sat in my living room and bawled and alarmed my children. Um, <laughs> but it it's so it's this gradual raising of the stakes has been going through the series, but also in the book uh, as war comes closer and closer and closer. So when we get to the point that Dallas is the one who's gunned down, we are really scared for him because you know there's 
the HEA promise, you know, all that kind of stuff is out there. But for a little bit there, you might think, are Brie and Donna going to do this to us? Is Dallas going to die? Because And so, like, I sat there, and I don't know. When I was reading that book, I I, I didn't know if, if Dallas was going to make it. I am feeling it with Lex because I just I just had flash die. And I, we just had Tank and Stuart. So, like, all those stakes were built. So when we go into Eden and we have people, you know, one guy, it's a Finn who gets a shot through the leg and Alex, Ace gets the shoulder and they're all getting banged up. And then you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> is, is this where we're going? Yeah, and I think it it is a, is a testament to the way that Brie and Donna kind of built that progression of character losses because we lose, we've lost characters before in other books, you know, the, the bad guys, quote unquote, we've had, other, you know, basically we increase in kind of proximity and intimacy to the O'Kanes until Flash dies. And once that happens, it's a very quick turnaround between the bomb dropping on on the broken circle and flash dying to when they are lining up outside the walls. It's they're done playing and it's time to get the war over with. Right. And that becomes such a tension uh, too, right? Because they've enlisted Markovic's help to try to reach the people of Eden because we, we find out that they've been using the propaganda uh, that based on the, the bodies that they left out there. To scare people. Yeah. Well, they're using Turns it Turns out scare. that was a bad call. <laughs> that was a bad call because now they're using it to scare the people of Eden into like the sectors are coming to kill you. Um, so they have to try to defuse that in some way. So when they go into Eden, they have a clear shot at the council that the people realize that they're not there to kill them. That they're not here to raid, rape and, and sack. Um, and, but Markovic really questions uh, Dallas's call to to turn around because it's like it's vengeance. It, you're angry, and it's gonna be a, it's gonna it's gonna hurt my people. But it's also sort of like, but well, we have to we have to end this here and now, right? Because it's we can't give Eden more time to recruit more people, and turn more people. And that becomes the question on everyone's mind as they kind of charge into this final battle: is will the people of Eden? rise up with the sectors will they keep themselves as neutral as possible have enough of them been living in eden long enough that they will take up arms for eden you know and so it just becomes this kind of nebulous question which is why i think it's so interesting that like i love the part of the book where we go to each specific character for their vignettes as opposed to staying in one like cohesive chapter i think that it is it's like cutscenes in a movie. And I think that it gives you that multi-angle view on the different aspects of the battle in a really like succinct way. But within those, we see the different ways that, you know, both people like regular citizens of Eden, as well as people who've been conscripted and kind of, we see all these different reactions to the sectors and these sector soldiers, but ultimately you very much so get the vibe that like these people want to side with the sectors. The things they lack are 
either the knowledge or the courage or the empowerment to be able to do so. Right. And they, and they might not be here to be a, become an okane. I mean, I, but that they want something other than the oppressive regime they've been under. They're not here going to, they're not going to be like a ticker take cake parade for Dallas and Lex, but it's really about, they know something's broken and wrong with their, with where their world is and with what they've been forced to do. And I think we see that with that last soldier, that writer sort of turns. Uh, so we get to see writer do his job. Um, what he always has been good at, of finding somebody's weak spot and knowing how to turn them. Um, and you see, he sort of wants that guy to go over to Dallas because he's like, basically he sees it like you've been badly used by the people around you right and that but you get a sense that that guy's not gonna go to dallas he's gonna keep on walking right away uh, he's he's heading, he's he's gonna maybe head to texas you know <laughs> yeah. yeah but that's a really good point that you made anna and thank you for making it but yeah it's very it's it's easy to say like the sectors versus eden but really it is it is the sectors representing an end to the corruption in Eden and the allowance of the people in Eden to then choose in a, in the same way that the people in the sectors have slowly been getting more and more ability to choose what happens to them. I love that the ultimate ending of this book feels very just, like it feels like people get justice, but it also ends with an attempt at like actual justice, like a utilization of the justice system because they decide at the end that Peterson, who is the potentially the most still living corrupt official in Eden, the one who is basically kind of now responsible for orchestrating the war from Eden's perspective, is arrested and taken into custody and taken to be held accountable. He's not summarily uh, executed. Yeah. Yeah. Which which in a certain way would have felt very satisfying and would have been completely understandable. But the fact that that's not what happens and that Brie and Donna made not that choice, I think, is a testament to this idea of this future that they are continuing to try to build throughout the entirety of this series. Well, and it and it's important that it's writer who makes that choice, right? Because writer's the person who can't see beyond the war. So you would think that what he would do is just pull his gun and, and like, okay, we're done. Boom. Yeah. But- this is, has been whole his whole life mission literally this is the thing he's been raised to do is to put a bullet in this guy's head and end eden end the corruption in eden and he ends up deciding no what he's gonna do is he's gonna make this guy an example and walk him out of there alive sort of basically as like a testament of like we're gonna start over and do this right um yeah and and, and, and I love the scene where, like, they're marching him in and the people of Eden are jeering at him. But Peterson, you know, this is not a guy who regrets a thing he's done, which, you know, is sort of like it's a radical act of trust in, in, in on O'Kane, on Markovic, on the future of Eden of, like, we're going to do this right. Yeah, and I think that's that's always a really interesting kind of scene that you see play out in war books right or at the end of books that are largely based around battle and war is that that decision and kind of that ultimate ultimate irony of to do the thing that feels the best you have to embrace and come from this perspective that's 
the uh, that's what you've been fighting against. I think Ryder very much so realizes that by taking the justice and the choice out of the hands of the people of Eden, he would actually just be perpetuating a lot of those same like really oppressive and shitty power dynamics because he would be making the choice. And while we know that that would be the right choice and we know that that would feel really good because of how awful Peterson is as a person, like for the good of this continued future, it's the quote right decision, like in the story and in the context. And I really appreciate that they made that choice because right. I think it's, it's not always like the easy the, choice to make. Right. You have to, this is a broken place who has been, and you sort of don't dive into even more brokenness. You're going to do something. We're going to build something from here. Um, and I like that Lex and Dallas have a hard time figuring out what, what their role is going to be in this new world. Uh, Markovic wants them back over in Eden, like ruling as a, like a sector ruling council. And they're like, Nah, we're going to rebuild and we're going to sit here and we're going to just sort of think about it. <laughs> I I appreciate that too. Yeah, I really love that. And I love that that because it very much so feels like they're tired and they've done so much of this. And so much of their goal, ultimate goal has been to get to the point where they can go back to being sector four, where they can go back to being the, you know, fight night drink and fuck and and do all of those things without having to worry about Eden coming down on them like it's that's what they've been fighting for this whole time along with everybody else's ability to make that same choice of lifestyle for themselves and so that's what they fought for and now they want to enjoy and rebuild and have that live in that goal because the goal for Dallas was never to sit on a ruling council sector in Eden and have ultimate power. Like, that's never what this has been about. Yeah, so you really get us. Like, I really love the denouement in the book of you, you, have, you have Lex and him recovering and him dealing with the fact that everybody's hovering over him, which is sort of a, a flip from the end of uh, Beyond Shame where he's hovering over a hurt Lex. Um, so they have this mirror of them recovering and tenderly sitting by each other on the couch ruling from their little throne in their own little kingdom that is the renewed broken circle and I love that Brie and Donna show us all the different things you know Tatiana has a store in the city um uh, Lily and Jared are running a VIP club Gia's coming in and bringing entertainment into the club you know you you get sort of a sense of the rebuilding and the moving forward and um but as part of that there's also like there's still there's still places to go and i love that moment where hawk comes and sits next to writer and they're talking about investments and the man who hadn't had dreams and is helping people find dreams right and so he's bankrolling investing he's basically like an angel investor uh, uh he's using all this money he's inherited from jim and from the, the the fleming family and he's putting it to work um helping people find what they need like the hawk sisters are gonna get into the yarn trade you know and um and so there's it's so it's so constructive you know like we've 
we we had seen them build and build and then build toward war and now there's a, a place where we're here at the end we're just having people start to rebuild and that it's not perfect it is not the same it's bigger it's bittersweet and we also get to see Amira and uh, see what mourning six months later looks like um, and how uh, Ryder helps Nessa keep her promise of getting them to the ocean um, so you know it's just I cried like a baby uh, the first time oh, I read yeah. it every time and then I cried again when they get to the ocean um, So I love that that's where we end the book and that it's it's a location that's so different from the sectors and Eden and where we've been spending so much time but also like the ocean for anybody who knows who's seen it is so expansive and so forever that it can really wipe some emotional slates clean and it can really put things in perspective in a way that I felt was really beautiful for this book I also love the the epilogue basically that we get that's the little time jump forward not only are there some really beautiful like literal kind of circular like life and birth and rebirth echoes because Rachel is having her baby you know at the same time that that you know Amira is still mourning Flash and so that loss of life with that new life and I just feel like we've spent nine books with so many different pockets and aspects and groups of these people that it feels very satisfying and hopeful and really kind of pushes forward the momentum on the fact that this world continues beyond the confines of the pages of the book in which it's written. Like we see enough of each different person's way of manifesting this bright new future. And at the same time, it all feels very like it's still all part of the same world. And so you can continue to see what that will be like for, you know, uh, Tatiana when her store takes off or what that could be like for Rachel and Ace and Cruz now that they have the baby. And so it's just really beautiful. And I think it can be hard to pull off an ending to a nine book series in a way that feels complete and satisfactory for everyone when you've had such an expansive cast of characters and such like so many things happen to them yeah i mean it's such a monumental change and i mean i i really respect the way brie and don are able to introduce new characters and build new storylines and they they they're building toward gideon's writers in this book um we have introduction of some of the specific writers we see them have a central uh, role, a sacrificial role in their role into Eden. Um, and so you get a sense of where that's going and we get to see Cora and Ashwin, who are going to be the first uh, romance in the Gideon Writers series, get a central thing. And that that's somebody we don't catch up with in the six, uh, six months later, right? We have him have this sort of moment where Cruz's prediction that he was going to scare Cora and by that hurt her, he experiences it and he decides, oh crap, I got to go to the base and get recalibrated. And off he, there, he disappears to only appear later, right? So he is that one of like a thread that if you've been reading the books, you'll be like, I'm going to sign up to read these Gideon Writer books because I want to know what's happening with Ashwin uh, and Cora. And... 
and it's yeah because we've obviously we've met them before we've seen them before they're kind of dynamic with each other and Ashwin's specific like emotional dysregulation as a Mackay soldier has been a plot point before but we really in this book get a glimpse of what it means for Ashwin to not be able to follow through with what he views as his mission to protect Cora and how that affects him how that affects her I think this is one of if not the first times that we get a vignette that's specifically from Cora's perspective um I know we've heard from Ashwin before but we specifically hear from Cora in this scenario which really does just lays the foundation for that central couple in Ashwin which is the first of the Gideon's writer books but really like you're saying lays a deeper world building within sector one because we've seen sector one we know who Gideon is we are aware of the writers but I think this is really the first time we've seen in action the depth of their pledge to the cause and their their willingness to be sacrificial lambs to the cause of sector one right and there's that moment where you have the temple guards who are clearly scared they don't want to die and then you got the writers who are like "Eh, we're gonna die and you get the, we, we get the story of like how they have their outlines drawn the day they join. So basically they are preparing for their death from the day they become a writer. Um, and we also get a thing of how Mad knows how much this is going to cost his brother, his, his, his cousin, right? You have Gideon who is still recovering from his near death and he can't go out with them. And so every death that Mad sees is a good death, right? Uh, for a writer, oh, he also knows that while Gideon is not wearing the ravens, he is wearing their souls because he feels deeply any loss of the people who die for him, right? So that's again sets up we're, you know, we still haven't gotten Gideon's book, but you sure know that that's going to be a central issue for him. Oh, I can't wait for Gideon's book. It's been now what nine 12 12 books in the making and we still don't have it but it's gonna be so good when it finally comes it's gonna be like it's gonna be like that last big brother in those five brother romance series <laughs> that's like watched everybody else pair off already and they finally get there like that's how i feel for Gideon. yeah and we and didn't talk be, about it in the last episode good. but we actually had a gideon up, uh, scene in beyond ecstasy where avery is here and she's all like acting almost patron like with him and she and he's like oh take that cup over there and and I don't remember who's with him in the scene but sort of like you're a jerk (laughs) kind of stuff but it's basically she wants her to not not treat him that way so he's it's so it so you know that okay all right this is where those yeah there's yeah there's there's some tension there's a little bit of uh of enemy or adversaries to lovers happening there but i have a pretty good feeling that when the time comes brie and donna will have some surprises in store for us and for gideon i'm so excited but do we have i mean i'm sure we do favorite parts to uh beyond ruin i mean it's hard this is a very emotional book so favorite might not be the best word it's funny i have a, a thing um Nessa has her wall of abandoned hobbies, right? Yes. Do you have a wall? I have I, a wall. You know, I am not, I'm not ADHD in that way. And actually, the thing that that kicks me in the heart is Nessa's uh, rejection of knitting, <laughs> because I'm a master knitter. I love knitting. So that the thing. So it was really funny when I was first reading the book. Went. Oh, oh, 
<laughs> because she says, you know, like, oh, uh, I mean, once you learn how to do this and this, the yarn just always does the same thing. And I'm like, you lie. You did not learn knitting. <laughs> I'm sorry. You only had one scarf. And you have not learned knitting. So I have an argument with I was going to say, she's I never tried anything that wasn't a rectangle. So. Exactly. Just like. Oh, honey, you you need to get it. it's it's it is it's not liquor or knitting. It's both. <laughs> but, but so that's my only like as a knitter hang up of like. But I know that this comes from uh, from Bree's own abandonment of knitting herself. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's you can see that actually if you follow Bree on Twitter or on Instagram, she will frequently go through different phases where she will pick up hobbies in between like book stuff that's going on. And so uh, that's why we'll link in the store. If you've never been, uh, Brie has an Etsy set up for um, the jewelry and stuff that she makes. Some of it's okay themed, some of it's not, but it's all gorgeous. So we will make sure to link to that because she makes some absolutely beautiful stuff. Um, that whole scene relates to me. I, It's very interesting to me that Nessa always puts it in that like dichotomy of it's either the liquor, which is like the thing that she's always done and like has been her one consistent like quote hobby or whatever versus the knitting, which stands in for like the 18 million other things the, the that she's, she's lost like, interest acquired in, yes. doing. But yeah, I also as a fellow like craft person, like n- crocheting and knitting would probably be like my liquor in that situation in terms of like other than reading a hobby that I almost always am doing something in and have been doing for so long. But I am also ADHD brained and that like I have a wall of hobbies, some of which I've learned more than others, (laughs) but I have almost always picked up in a big flurry of like, I will buy all of the things to do this thing in any iteration I could ever want to do it in. So that even if I never do the thing, I will have all the supplies necessary. Should I ever decide that I want to learn to, bead chokers or macrame plant hangers or do almost literally I certainly identify with the thrill of learning something new because it's funny because in knitting what I do I'm a process knitter I'm all about learning the new skill so so I don't care about the product in the end I might never wear that shawl again Um, but I learned a really cool stitch and some construction thing and da 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 so in that sense I'm like I totally get that because I am about getting the rush of figuring something out and doing something new. So yeah, see, that's very interesting because I'm similar in just in that (laughs) I am very like, I keep maybe 1% of the things that I make because the vast majority of things that I make, I am making to keep my hands busy. I am making, so like I would, I would have a house of blankets if I had kept all the blankets I had ever crocheted. And I would never need a hat again if I had kept all the hats I'd ever knitted. But luckily there are, I have friends and family and charities out in the world who are all about taking those extra things. So I very much so kind of empathized or was on that same vibe of when Nessa talks about specifically part of it is the thrill of learning, but part of it is also to keep her hands busy and have like that tactile outlet for energy and stuff was very much so I just for so many reasons love Nessa so much and that is just one of the things I find most relatable about her no she she's she's just sweet and different and has just a different you know so uh, the ladies have tended to be coming into the gang or dealing with what it, and she's been there from the beginning and still feeling sort of on the outside um, just because of her age and her role because she grew up in the gang and who all that. So yeah, she's special and I really love her. And if anything, 
what was interesting to me on this reread is discovering how much I like Ryder for her uh, because so much of how, how he sees her uh, when nobody else has seen her recently because they always see her as whatever she's been. Yeah, nobody ever, she's she's always there, so nobody ever really sees her there. And then he comes along and, and sees her. And that's, I think, as romance readers, a trope we always really can love and appreciate of the, like, you see me in that way that nobody else has seen me for X, Y, Z reason. But, oh, man, Miss Anna, I think this is one of the longest we've ever gone, which is fitting with our with it being the last official book. Um, we will be back. We're going to take a little bit of a break after this as we kind of figure out what we want the next kind of move and schedule and stuff to be. But keep an eye on Twitter because we will keep you guys posted. Um, but we are planning on doing the Patreon stories and all three of the Gideon's Writer books that are currently out. So as we kind of figure out what the next moves are, we will keep you guys in the loop, but do know that we will have those episodes coming for you. Um, In the meantime, do you want to let them know where they can find us online? Yes, you can find us at beyondthesectors.com for all our show notes and news. And then you can find us on Twitter at Beyond Sectors. Wonderful. Um, before I forget, I do want to mention we are planning on doing a Q&A with Brie and Donna at some point in time. So if you have cues that they can A, that you are just outstanding, feel free to send them to either myself or Anna or to the show. Twitter, the DMs are open. Just let us know that that's what you're asking for and we will get those passed along to Brie and Donna when the time comes. But in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at An Outlaw Life. And me on Twitter as Anna Koki. And uh, for one of the last time, friends, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and we'll see you beyond the sectors. Bye, guys. Bye.